once came another man. Style of tall. Go ahead. I'll be honest. I, I played a very high standard. Young a superstar. Give some lessons. Determination. Was extremely... Welcome to the Chess Underground. Eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. Uh, okay, so we are back in October of 2023. This is a topic, Gopal, you and I have discussed before and we've wanted to do for a while. Uh, really an interesting one, I think, one that you had proposed. Do you want to mm-hmm. drop us in here, lead us in? Um, yeah, so it's basically going to be the, you know, just some of the three things, like top three things that we feel like we really understood a lot better after crossing 2200 understood better, or maybe even like learned for the first time. Right. Yeah. It could be like things that you learn or understand better, like post becoming a master. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, the first one we're going to go with here is one that uh, Gopal has, and I'm very excited to talk about this one. So Gopal, take us away. Yeah. So the first one was, um, how to approach decisive slash must win games. This is the reason I, I like starting with this one is because I think this is one that I got wrong so many times as a lower rated player. Absolutely. Like, and like it kind of permeates um, throughout like a lot of uh, other facets of chess thinking um, when you do get this wrong. Yes, like general general chess thinking, especially like in tournament chess thinking, right? Mm-hmm. So how did you do it and how should you do it? I mean, how did I do it? Like, basically, you know, with, with no sophistication in so many words. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's not like... I don't know if you could call it like a brute force type approach or, or something like that, but you know, basically, I thought, okay, I have to ba- bum rush this guy. You know, um, right. I right. There's no. It's not like really finessed. Uh, like I'm gonna hit him with like the sharpest opening line I, because I have to. Right. Um, you know, I'm not gonna play boring chess, quote unquote. Um, so like, which is kind of one of those very bad thinking patterns that we were talking about. Yeah, exactly. Which I want to get into more of, but let, let's like set the stage for a bit, and we'll we'll call this like pre go ball. So like before mm-hmm. before coming to this new understanding, it's the fifth round of a weekend Swiss, right? Mm-hmm. You've got three and a half. You're paired against the guy with four. A draw, you're massively hungover. <laughs> draw will not suffice. Yes, you need you need the full point. Otherwise, you know, you're not, you're not getting first. You're not winning. Yeah. Um, and I think there's this tendency, particularly among 
class players to believe that like, you know, we've all heard the phrase like, okay, I have to throw the kitchen sink at him, right? Exactly. Like yeah. I have to, you know, in your, in your words, bum rush, throw the kitchen sink. I've got to go sort of all out and just kind of throw caution to the wind and go all in, if you will. Right. Right. I, I see this mistake in students like very frequently, this like thought pattern. Mm-hmm. So what's the problem with it? Well, um, you, okay, sure. So, you know, at times in chess, in order to provoke some sort of um, uh, unexpected or irrational result, you know, you have to, there, there is sometimes like some, something extreme required, but again, that's, that's very extreme, you know, and really you don't want to fight against the natural flow of the game or what the position wants from you. I think also there's um, part of that mindset or mentality is the belief that like some sort of forcing action is required, right? Like you have to, right. almost like the sports, the sports mentality of like, I got to make something happen. You know, I got to go out right. there and make something happen on this next play or, you know, like this next series or whatever. Yeah. I mean, the, if I, if I think of, uh, must win games, um, you know, perhaps the most iconic to me is the Kasparov, um, Karpov 1987, uh, the last game of that match Mm -hmm. where Kasparov had, he had white and, you know, he had to win in order to tie the match, which would have resulted in him retaining the title. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like really what he did was, I mean, they, and by then they had played so many world championship games. There was a the boarded 1984 match. They had uh, the full match in 1985, which resulted in Kasparov's coronation. 1986 was like Leningrad, London. Uh, and now we're playing in Sevilla in 1987. And, you know, they, they had played so many different openings um, already. And, yeah, in the, for for this game, Kasparov opted for a very quiet, like, double fianchetto English reti type setup. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than, like, going for the sharpest line in the Rui Lopez or, you know, try some sexy little attacking try in the QGD or something like that. Um, and I forgot who it was, if it was you or uh, maybe Akash Maduri or somebody else that we were talking about this um, subject with. But basically, he chose to, kept there to keep the game at a simmer. And I really like thinking of it like that. Um, you know, it's hard to force action against such a solid opponent anyway. Um, at that juncture to do so could constitute like a spoiling of your position. Therefore it's better off like, you know, maintaining the tension and, um, you know, saving some of the drama and intrigue for like later on in the game. Yeah, I think, so that's, that's the approach that I didn't really have a grasp on until I was a much stronger player, um, you know, than that class player uh, coming up through the ranks and, Mm -hmm. You know, being able to, I think part of it is being able to actually do that to keep the game at a simmer without, like, to know when it is time to take a chance versus when it is not time to take a chance, you know? Right. To have that understanding of, you know, I can keep this going. I can keep presenting problems and asking questions versus, okay, I've, I've got a strike now. Part right. Of it, part of it is just like lacking that, 
I guess experience, a lot of that is experience, I think. Like having that mm-hmm. knowledge is experience. A feeling. A feeling, well. intuition, you might call it, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or even just like a sense for the moment. A sense for the moment. Yeah, that's an excellent way of putting it. Um, like knowing when the time has come. A sense for the critical moment. And, you know, going going off like the that sense for the moment or like I must strike like that type of mentality. Uh, don't you feel like with a lot of uh, less experienced players, it is often a problem to pull that like uh, to hit the panic button too early in a in a lost or bad position rather than uh, opting for like that dogged determination approach that we discussed a few episodes ago? Yeah, I do. I think that that's like a really common um, mistake of feeling like panic is probably the absolute best word for it, right? Because panic implies a few things. It implies, first of all, uh, a natural overreaction, right? Uh And second of all, it implies like a a lack of knowing, a, a lack of a sense of control, I think is maybe the best way to put it. And that's, mm-hmm. I think that's exactly what players feel in those that's moments where they maybe start to take this rash action is they feel that control is slipping away, right? I don't have control of the game. I don't understand what's going on. And so the panic starts to seep in. And then, you know, that's when you have something like this occur. Right. Yeah. And, all, and also, you know, it's definitely a... a not as great of a recognition of the types of resources, even, um, you know, rather bleak positions can offer. Right. Um, you know, like in basically it, like whatever they would do essentially would constitute like a, a really great spoiling of their position rather than like maybe digging in and resisting a bit, but that's, you know, a slightly different. Right. Topic. Lashing out and making the problem harder essentially. Right. Right. Yeah. But yeah, going back to like the must-win games, you know, this this advantage of keeping the game at a simmer is really um it's it's really quite a remarkable concept cuz like you think in order to um play for a win, like, you know, you want to play the sharpest possible opening that you can, but like uh for instance, there's so many sharp opening lines where um when the pieces come into contact and they clash early, the fighting resources of both players exhaust themselves um, just as quickly. You know, we see this a lot, like in certain lines of Grunfeld, like the Nidorf Poison Pawn, you know, uh, so many different opening lines can be like resolved concretely. And, you know, it doesn't leave a whole lot of intrigue. Yeah, I think that's, if you think about it logically, the idea of the simmer the slow simmer versus the quick strike just makes a ton of sense because you're prolonging the opportunity for the opponent to mess up. Right. Right. Exactly. And as opposed to what you pointed out, right? Like where the, if there's one sharp flame, that flame can flame out. Right. Right. If it's a sharp opening, essentially what you're doing is you're creating one crisis point versus the potential or the possibility for a variety of crisis points. Right. Throughout a long summer. And yeah, by playing in in like a less concrete way, you're giving your opponents more rope to hang themselves with because it's less likely that they've, you know, studied these, um, you know, like a lot of this stuff at home. 
you know, it's very interesting. I was, so this is sort of a base level of explaining it, but just this last weekend, I was at a local scholastic tournament and our mutual friend, Henry Getz was there working with one of the, one of the kids. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> the, the, the player, um, basically made a move which allowed his opponent's piece to come back into the game that was cut out of the game right mm-hmm. and you know henry said well you know why not just keep his his piece out of play for a while and the the scholastic student properly demonstrated a plan whereby you know it was kind of a complex plan but the player could eventually like bring his piece back into play anyway right mm-hmm. so henry's point was well why not pose problems? And he did yeah, something make very him, make him find it. Make him find it exactly. And he did something very interesting. He started asking him some like basic math questions, right? Mm-hmm. And the kid obviously got them right. You know, it was like eleven plus, you know, fourteen or something. He said, "Now, but if I keep asking you those and I ask enough of them, maybe one of them is complex enough, or you just go a little too quickly and you eventually miss it, right? It's like if I just keep mm-hmm. asking you more and more, maybe you eventually miss one. And that's kind of like the analogy or the point he was trying to make in the position is, you know." let them have to answer all those questions. Yes, can they probably answer them? Sure. But if you ask enough of them and eventually one comes along that's a little too complex or at the right moment they, they move a little too quickly and answer that question wrong, you know, that's how, that's how you can you know, do what you're saying, provide that rope, right? This is what Smyslov's uh, philosophy was, right? Like mm-hmm. I'll play 40 good moves yes. and if my <laughs> opponent makes 40 good moves, right? If my opponent plays 40 perfect moves, the game will be a draw. (laughs) And and also, like, a part of that I feel like we didn't get into when we discussed Mislov, um, that I feel like I only got better at as I matured as a player, was being okay, like, if the game was a draw, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. for me, when I was younger, like, it was, it could have been the worst possible thing to, like, falter or like you know for my opponent to play well god forbid in that moment (laughs) right but like you know being okay and honestly just playing as if it is just another game you know which you have to to do otherwise you know you could lose your presence of mind you're not going to stay in the moment you know get too hype and then like you just forget about what's in front of you exactly yeah and also, just one more thing with the sharp um, opening lines versus, uh, you know, the, you know, so-called, like, more quiet ones. I remember we were uh, looking at some games back when Andrew Tang was searching or chasing, like, his second or third GM norm. Mm-hmm. And we were looking at a game with uh, where he beat Sabino Br- Brunello as black on the black side of a Tartakauer QGD. And I, and I told him, I'm like, you know, that's so crazy. He's going to become a GM playing the Bishop E7 QGD in open tournaments and like nothing but that. And he said something very interesting to me. Um, You know, he said that he always thought that these Queens gambits and like more quiet openings offered better winning chances um, for black than like the Kings Indians or Grunfelds or any of that stuff. Um, And I thought that was really interesting. I asked him why. Uh, first of all, like he's a big fan of like taking the center. So like, he's not giving away center space. So he's very taking less approach. Yeah. Right. He's taking a little bit less risk, um, in that sense. And so he's starting off with a solid foundation, right? Mm -hmm. Hard to argue with that. And then, um, but like, because of what we're talking about, like the pieces don't clash early, the flame of the game doesn't like 
flame out uh, super early. And, you know, if white pushes um, to try for something more than like equality, which is a, you know, another thing we have to conceptualize, like then, you know, you get a real fight. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, um, especially the very last part you made there about like finding ways to get a fight, right? Mm-hmm. Like how uh, it's not just about um, necessarily provoking the opponent. You know, sometimes you know you, even positions where you're sort of maneuvering for a strategic edge are sufficient enough. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, you just need a, a canvas to work with. That's all, right? And that's you know that's sort of the idea of the simmer too. Is right, you're providing this canvas for a lengthy period of time and allowing the, the art to be created. Mm-hmm. If there is art to be created, I suppose. I agree. Um, okay. Should we move on to uh, item number two? Any final thoughts on, on this one? I guess, I guess one question I would have is where do you think this perception seeps in? Because, you know, we both discussed your, your first point here about how to approach a must win game. And we both had the same experience as, you know, sort of up and coming, you know, class players of, oh, yeah, you got to try to you got to try to go, you know, quote unquote, go nuts. Why do why is that misconception there? Do you think? Um, that's a great question. I think a lot of it has to do. Well, you know, we've, we've kind of alluded to this before in this discussion and other ones, like this narrative of what type of chess player one is. Um, yeah. yes. Like, you know, I don't play boring chess, mm-hmm. right? How many times have we heard that? Um, you know, like such a attitude is very corrosive, you know, like you could overlook like a good exchange um, just because you're mindlessly trying to preserve pieces under the guise of like, keeping more tension or intrigue in the position, but mm-hmm. like just not seeing what's in front of you. Like this is a good exchange, you know? Yeah. I think there's a very fine line. If I can kind of draw together what you're getting at here, I think there's a very fine line between having a style and pigeonholing yourself into a mindset. Um, right. And, and I think a lot of, a lot of class players and a lot of players who you know, maybe don't have as full of an understanding of, uh, of some of the, the aspects of chess. Um, and that's certainly not to say that I have a complete and whole understanding of, of the game whatsoever, mm-hmm. right? Just from experience, though, you know, um, putting yourself into a mindset that precludes logical moves, you know, to your point about making exchanges when they're right in right. front of you that might benefit you. Uh, I think is probably one of the most common mistakes I see among class players. And it's, Absolutely. And it's not even a chess mistake, which is the crazy part. It's like a, it's like a, a mental one where you're just thinking about yourself in a certain way. You're perceiving yourself as a player in a certain way. It's not even like a, you know, you see what I'm saying here? It's not right, like a, yeah. a fundamental playing error. It's just an error of self-perception almost. Which is very bizarre that that right, that that's and it comes game. across as like you know because the results can be really bad, and it it makes it look like yeah you don't understand chess like but right. you, you know you, I mean you do but you don't like it's mm-hmm. um yeah also like one thing just quick thing I guess we could close the book on this after that um is that like I remember a quality chess blog uh, training post uh, by Jakob Agard where he talks about 
um, boring reflecting a, like what it is, what does it mean? And like, essentially how saying something is boring, uh, reflects a lack of understanding, you know, so it's yes. easy yeah. to write that, write it off as such. Um, yeah. but like even in quiet positions, there's stuff that's going on and like, yeah, obviously more, some positions are going to be a bit more tedious than others, you know, and some will be more exciting and thrilling than others. Right. You know, in terms of like, wow, there's like a lot of cool variations to calculate here, right? Right. But, but squeezing yeah, water from static. stone also has its own, you know, kind of intrinsic uh, beauty, I would say. Yeah, like a placid beauty. Mm-hmm. On that note, um, moving on, my, my first one here is an interesting one. You would think that I would have learned this at some point before crossing 2200, um, but I never heard it said out loud. Like... I never heard it framed this way. I never heard it phrased this way. I never heard it said out loud. And while I might have like blindly stumbled across the idea in some of my own games here and there, I did not like have it in my brain as like a dogmatic notion or concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my, my first item that I learned sort of post-achieving master rating uh, was from our mutual friend, Grandmaster Vladimir Georgiev. Mm-hmm. And he said one time, he just said, uh, never initiate an exchange. And I uh-huh. thought, I, yeah, go ahead. Oh no, that was from him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, fascinating. Go yes, on. I thought that was like very, um, like I had to think about that for a minute because I, surely I thought, like in my games, I must have initiated exchanges at some point that like made sense, right? <laughs> that right. That was like the correct move or like wise to do. But I actually really like this statement, never initiate an exchange, because there's sort of an, a tacit second half of that. And the tacit second half of that, which remains unsaid, and I think perhaps um, wisely remains unsaid, is, you know, dot, 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 unless it really obviously benefits you. Right. right. You have to be, you know, very specific about your exchanges. Precisely. Right. So like basically, you know, very choosy, right? Very, um, yeah, specific is the right word. It's a good word. And I think that, you know, as I mentioned, I had kind of stumbled across this idea before where like, you know, ah, yes, in in most baseline, you know, in a vacuum scenarios, you don't want to be the one initiating an exchange. You know, a good example would be like rook c1 captures rook c8, black rook a8 captures back rook c8, and now you've lost the c file. Right. Right. Or you've helped activate their helped activate you know, their undeveloped rook. Yeah. Right. I mean, like one one uh, example I, I often use to show this to to students. Um, like I'm sure you've had uh, some students, right? Like a, you do this at at lower levels. Like let's say after the moves e4, e6, mm-hmm. you know, d4, d5. Um, you know, we'll see so many like less experienced players play E take D because right. they have to, right? Now, E take D, E take D, you know, okay, it's it's debatable whether white has any advantage anywhere in the French defense nowadays. But like, you know, if we're to take this argument at surface value or yeah, at surface value, like, you know, the exchange variation might not be the one that gives black nightmares, right? Yeah, that's so true. You know, one of the reasons for that is because uh, after E take D, E take D, not only does white erode, you know, their slight space advantage, 
but they also increase the activity of lax pieces. For instance, there is no more bad bishop on c8. Right. Whereas if you were to protect the pawn with knight c3 or knight d2 on move 3, de4, knight e4, we still have an exchange of pawns, but notice white's activity increased slightly. We have a lovely knight in the center, and we've maintained a very slight space advantage. And the bishop on c8 remains blocked in. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that's, a, that's an excellent example, right? I mean, laying it out sort of in plain day, the difference between being the initiator of an exchange versus not, right? In scenario mm-hmm. one of your French opening example, white was the initiator and sort mm-hmm. of resolved and helped, helped black resolve some problems. Uh, and in scenario two, black was the initiator of the pawn exchange, right? Right. And uh, not, not to say that DE4 is necessarily a terrible move in that position, but obviously, right, if we're talking about very slight things, um, yeah. and as Nimzovich says, right, chess is the accumulation of tiny advantages, um, you can see just from that one very plain example the, the, the difference. Mm-hmm. I, I think what is interesting about this one is, similar to a lot of things that you have to teach students, and, and conversely, if you're the student that you have to learn, this is a rule that you can break a lot. It's mm-hmm. a rule that's not even really a, a hard and fast rule. It's a rule that like, doesn't really apply all the time. But thinking about it and phrasing it that way has sort of helped me in so many scenarios because I'll, I'll sort of be calculating a line and, and then I'll notice or sort of think out loud to myself, wait, I'm initiating an exchange in that line. Am I gaining an obvious or clear benefit? Right. Right. Like, why are we doing it? Are we doing it because we have to, because we're compelled to? Like, it's not, you know, whatever the famous joke is, it's not checkers, right? Right. Yes. You don't have to take. That's exactly right. And, and sometimes when I like think of it that way or frame it for myself that way, like, wait, I'm initiating an exchange. I rethink mm-hmm. or reevaluate like sort of all the different things I'm calculating in the position and realize that I was about to play a line that just doesn't make sense at all. Right. It does more harm than good. There's this other idea. Actually, this, this is kind of tangentially related to this. I would, in fact, state that don't initiate exchanges is a version of what I'm about to say or like a, sort of like a subheader of what I'm about to say. And if mm-hmm. I had thought of this earlier, it would have been one of my three things for sure, which is do no harm. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's this doctor. I think it's like the Hippocratic Oath or something, right? Yeah, we, we talked about this. Yes, exactly. The do no harm. In episode 13. Man, you're. I don't know what I don't know what episode it was. Encyclopedic memory, man. I just wanted to s- pretend like I was well prepared. <laughs> but right, like this is kind of a subheader under "do no harm," right? Mm-hmm. Um, like it's better to, um, it's better to simply like take no or little action as long as you're not as long as you're not harming your position, than to like try to force it if it's if it's not available. And I think not initiating exchanges is kind of like a subheader under that. Right, for sure. And um, a lot of times, too, like it's, it's not even really the, the context of, um, you, of what we're talking about, but it, it's, it's useful to contemplate, a, you know, for situations like the last, um, you know, point that we're talking about, about like mm-hmm. must win or decisive games. Um, you know, a lot of times, like the amateurs don't get specific enough with the exchanges, right? Like, right. you know, you do it because you have to or, or whatever. They don't see anything better. But, like, also um, kind of the opposite of what we were talking about um, or to that opposite if 
point would be like if you know you're seeking a draw or equality, like blindly going for exchanges. Um, yeah. And initiating exchanges in that way can be rather corrosive because you know you could be spoiling your position. Like the exchange, the simplifications give an illusion of clarity or safety yes. when actually they could even uh, serve to highlight the opponent's positional pluses. Yeah, my old friend and former guest of the podcast, he had a name for that. He called it the trade trade lewds um, because uh, he was uh, uh, Brian Wall. Uh, he was a 2200 rated player from Colorado. He faced a lot of lower rated opponents and you know his, uh, he, he would regularly write up the games and talk about how, you know, hey, look, my opponent here is trying to draw me or trying to simplify matters, but by making these trades, you know, to kind of, to quote unquote simplify, he's actually just helping increase my advantage, right? right? So he called it the trade trade lose. He said, yeah, a lot of low rated players do this against me in in effort to clarify things, to try to play for a draw, but it's not a trade trade draw or even a trade trade win. It's a trade trade lose. He had a, he had a name for that, which I always thought was pretty funny. That's so Raven. <laughs> trade trade lose. Um, okay, should we move on to your number two? Uh, sure. Any final thoughts on this one before we do? So again, don't initiate exchanges. That was my first item I learned post-master. Any final thoughts, or would you like to present option two or item two from Gopal? Uh, let's do item two. Okay. Uh, so when I... And yeah, really, it probably wasn't even until I crossed 2300 that I learned this, but like, the idea of concept-based opening preparation. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's really like, you know, written about oh, widely or whatever, but um, that's just kind of what I call it. Um, basically, my understanding of it is just, um, it, it's essentially more sophisticated opening preparation. Um, so what exactly it, is concept-based opening preparation? Well, it it can it takes form um, in a lot of things. I mean, maybe the best way to show it would be through an example. Sure. Like I remember uh, one of the best, uh, or probably one of the first things to open my eyes to this was um, a book on the Queen's Gambit accepted by Alexander Delchev and Semko Semkov. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took a look at a lot of the lines, and of course they recommend the normal. Um, you know, QGA lines, like, for instance, against E3 to play E6, C5, A6, like the old stuff, like almost what everybody's playing now. Um, And, but then I noticed they gave like an alternative, um, you know, more quote unquote fighting repertoire. So like meeting three E3 with E5 or Mm -hmm. knight F3 with knight F6, E3, bishop G4. And later going for E6. And, and meeting three E4 with knight C6. And I was looking at these lines and I was wondering, what do they have in common? And then I realized he's going for and actually able to transpose to the very sharp and interesting Chigorin defense um, mm-hmm. in many lines while avoiding a lot of really critical lines in the actual Chigorin defense um, because of the problems that that move order affords black. And I thought that was really cool to be able to seek out, you know, those same type of interesting dynamic positions through a very different move order. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think, you know, 
one of the primary things that we think about when we think of opening preparation is almost like opponent specific preparation, right? Mm -hmm. So kind of having a concept that you're going for and that you want to get into in some ways is a bit of a safety is a bit of a safety net, right? Like you have, um, as opposed to like targeting someone and risking potentially, you know, right. Preparing their openings before you prepare yours. Exactly. Right. Yeah. This is sort of the opposite of that. You're just saying like, you know, I have, I have this concept or idea that I want to, that I want to get to or get on the board and I have multiple ways to try to achieve that. So here we go. Right. Right. And I mean, I would also say, um, I mean, the, the word safety is interesting because like how I would associate that with this concept in a different way is um, the safety of being, or of like the likelihood of being found out, you know, um, in this day and age with like, um, you know, almost even, even very weak players having good quality or access to good quality opening preparation and materials. I feel like this is the type of preparation that survives because it's kind of hard to uh, you know, pick up or find out like what this person is up to, unless, you know, you have a very broad, um, knowledge of chess theory and other openings. Yeah, I agree. How much does that plan to you? Do you think like, you know, having that broader perspective? I'm sorry, what, how much does it, uh, how, like how, um, so we're talking about specifically, uh, opening, uh, like pre- pre- preparing a concept. So like how critical mm-hmm. or, or how much does it play into it to have that broader sort of base? Well, I mean, it certainly helps, you mm-hmm. know, um, because yeah, I mean, like for instance, let's, let's take our earlier example, the, the QGA, you know um, I mean, obviously seeing the lines that Delchev and Semkov recommend, you could see how they're Chigorin defense adjacent, you know, but right. Right. Uh, the QGA in even some of these, uh, you know, second string lines, um, are, are held in, let's say a higher prestige or then, or higher opinion than maybe the Chigorin defense. So like, it's conceivable that somebody, you know, could play the QGD or QGA, sorry, for a while and not really have any knowledge of the Chigorin defense. Right. Um, right. You just... Even though it's adjacent, you're focused strictly on the QGA um, positions, let's say. Right. Yeah, exactly. And even though it's adjacent, you might not even realize, like, if you don't have that other knowledge. Um, right. Actually, I mean, that's, that's, that's one of the things that I um, work on with students pretty regularly is, like, understanding what, um, what openings, what opening concepts, not necessarily what openings, because I don't know that that's necessarily useful. But what opening concepts, the systems that you are playing, can potentially become or transpose into? A good example would be, let's say the white side of the Roy Lopez, right? You're playing black mm-hmm. against the Roy Lopez. White doesn't play h3. You get to go bishop g4 and pressure the knight on f3. Yeah, and then you, 9 d4, bishop g4. Yes, precisely. And then, you, and then you like trade on d4, you play c5, and now they go d5, and we have the Benoni structure. The Benoni, yeah. That's in the 10 bishop e3 line. Exactly. Um, and not the 10 d5 line. But yeah, exactly. Right. Like, yeah, there, you know, if you, yeah, like if you don't play bishop g4, you know, you could write, like, let white get in d4 for free in that position. 
Uh, and granted, Black is maybe not forced to go for that Benoni approach. There is, you know, ED4 and D5, which goes for uh, open Spanish type approach, which might not be to everybody's taste because why did you play bishop e7 on move five you know right. when you could have played knight take e4 so it's like at some point some type of broader knowledge would help even in positions like like the Rui lopez or benoni like two opposite ends of the spectrum in a lot of people's minds in terms of soundness or solidity yes but yet <laughs> here we have in one of the in one of the main variations right where they can essentially become one another depending on the, the move sequence it's played. Yeah, exactly. And um, I mean, yeah, the, the idea of the concept um, can manifest itself in a lot of uh, different ways. Like, uh, like uh, for instance, Grandmaster Nikola Mitkov, like who have been seconding as most um, of our listeners would probably know uh, for almost 10 years now. Um, he is one of the world's leading specialists on the bishop's opening. And basically, the bishop's opening, uh, which is e4, e5, bishop, c4, um, if we compare it to the Italian game, uh, in the Italian game, we have the knight on f3 blocking the f-pawn. So a lot of times, if left to his own devices, like the white setup would look something like e4, e5, bishop, c4, and then knight c3, d3, followed by f4 and knight f3, right. you know? So this concept um, of this Vienna bishop, Vienna game bishops opening appealed to him so much, uh, he tried to use this type of idea in other systems. Like, for instance, uh, the Grand Prix attack in the Sicilian. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, the one of the, you know, great things about chess, I would say, uh, can be frustrating, but it's kind of cool in my opinion, is that like you can't have your cake and eat it always. So like there are <laughs> right. certain very right, frequently certain, you cannot. Yeah. Like for instance, e4, c5, knight c3, d6, f4 uh, works out for white generally a lot better than e4, c5, knight c3, d6, or knight c3, knight c6, f4, because right. e6, d5 can come with tempo, for As instance. As opposed to having you, spent the tempo already on d6. On d6, mm-hmm. right? So like, you know. Uh, later he made, you know, he, he realized, okay, you have to make a compromise, right? So, you know, transpose to the open Sicilian in some lines, but you avoid like knight or for like other sharp lines, um, or even knight c3, knight c6, bishop b5, which contains, you know, grand prix adjacent ideas. You know, Um, it's interesting. I actually prepared that exact line against an opponent. So as you know, I have been prolifically an English and d4 player. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I was playing in a, in a FIDE Futurity event, uh, eight-player round robin in the early 2000s, and I noticed that my opponent in the move order, e4, c5, knight c3, was playing d6 a lot, um, mm-hmm. almost exclusively. And so I just went right for that and then, and then played f4 uh, because he was including d6 and I could get that tempo. Right, that in, it, yes, in improved in theory, Grand Prix. Attack. In theory, improved, yeah, right, and it worked um, out marvelously. I mean, just um, anyway, yeah, for sure. And um, you know, within this also is probably another very important aspect uh, that we can as- extrapolate about creating, um, you know, this concept-based opening preparation. That is the creation of your own theory. Right. Um, Alex Cholovich, um, very good. Uh, 
you know, writer. He has a good email list and blog, and he started a YouTube channel recently. Uh, talked about this in a few YouTube videos recently that this was something that Botvinnik advocated. And um, yeah, by creating your own theory, you know, you're not like, I guess if I were to put it in today's terms, you're not looking at what everybody else is looking at um, for this week's like flavor uh, of chessable course by, you know, whatever elite player released it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're fighting on your own territory, which is great. Um, a lot of it could be uh, gaps in existing chess literature. So it's like mm-hmm. harder to find like accurate models as to how to proceed. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you're, you're sort of forced to think for yourself, which is really a great quality that, you know, not a lot of players develop uh, early enough in their career. I think that's a really good point. You know, like um, being, first of all, even being able to think for yourself in the opening. Mm-hmm. Um, and then second of all, uh, finding paths that allow you to do that more, more frequently and earlier. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, shall we move on? Any final thoughts to wrap this one up again, concept based opening preparation, mm-hmm. any final thoughts or shall we move on? I think we shall move on. I, you know, I, I'm glad you said that because you, you left us with the perfect segue. We were just talking about grandmaster Nikola Mitkov and it was from his lips that I heard the following maxim which I had never heard uh, until after uh, passing the writing of Master. And the more I thought about it and the more examples I've seen of it, the more I realize how interesting of a claim it is. Um, mm-hmm. And Nicola, one time when we were analyzing positions, uh, he said, a computer evaluation of 000 is never equal. And I thought that was a very interesting thing to hear. And the more I've looked into it and, and kind of uh, analyzed it, I think he was like spot on. And essentially, his idea there was that, um, if I'm understanding it correctly, a computer evaluation of 000 meant one of two things. Either number one, the the quote-unquote equalizing or equal line often involved a perpetual check that like no human is going to be looking for or going for, right? So that's point number one. And other lines were not going to, to lead to that dead equality. Uh, or point number two... Uh, the path, you know, the path of maneuvering required to reach that dead equality was, you know, so complex and and sort of beyond the scope and of, obscure. Yes, yes, very obscure. Exactly. That that's the right word. Obscure beyond the point of things that humans would look at. And so, mm-hmm. therefore, in like a practical setting or a practical environment, you know, oftentimes, you know, point two or point three either direction was a much more equal position than zero zero zero. And the more I analyze not only my own games, but also games of top-level players, and I see those you know, dead-even 0 evals, and then play out the variation or line that leads to that, I just realize, man, Nicola was right. Like, practically, yeah. this position is unequal. I mean, it's, I, I definitely think part of that had a lot more, um, had a lot more weight when he had told us that... Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of that statement remains quite true. Um, but uh, yeah, obviously, this was there, like ten years ago. So, did caveat about different engine <laughs> knowledge. Yeah, right? capabilities for sure. Mm-hmm. But like, uh, you know, uh, one of the things uh, that hap- I feel like happened a lot more, um, a lot longer ago, which still happens now, but a little bit less frequently, is the horizon effect, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you totally trick the computer. Like, the computer would give like. Zero is just unfazed by this attack, and it 
sees that maybe one side has sacrificed so much material um, and it sees a perpetual check. So it's like not worse, but like for a human, you'd be so alarmed, like looking at how unprotected the king is. And then, you know, surprise, surprise, there's like a winning blow might involve like some moves of domination or like not necessarily a direct, direct crush, but like the win is there. And the computer only gives zero, zero because, you know, for its algorithm with the, you know, material uh, based, materialish, uh, materialist thinking, uh, that's what it just sees, you know? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, you know, you had brought up, when I mentioned this topic uh, before we started, you had brought up an interesting point about essentially just like how our understanding of computers changes as we progress as a chess player. And, and your point was actually related to the topic we just spoke about, which is thinking for yourself, right? Right, yeah, making the computer work for you rather than you working for it. it what do you mean by that for, for our listeners? I know what you mean, but for our listeners, what, what exactly do you mean? Well, you know, especially for those that are new, uh, newer to the game, like, you know, the technology is obviously as, as good as it's ever been. Um, and there's just a tendency to kind of uh, blindly accept, you know, whatever the computer says. But, um, you know, there, there still has to be a certain element of human understanding um, and understanding like what could be equivalent, um, you know, uh, what could be an equivalent move to make or, you know, what is possible to have an expectation to see right during a game if you're using it let's say to go over one of your games um i mean there's several things to to talk about there yeah i think um one of one of the things that i always talk with students about you were talking about going over your games is like how to use how to use an engine to like uh review a game not prep for a game but like review a game and that i think is is also sort of related to this because interpreting uh the numbers that are being spit out to you is very important right for example, mm-hmm. one thing that I always advise, strongly advise students to do is if they reach a point in their game where, you know, the computer is spitting back, hey, somebody's winning here, you know, you're well ahead here and it's giving you a move, you know, turn it off, don't look at the line and try to figure it out, right? You know the move, right. now you miss that move in the game, you know what move it is now because the computer, computer showed it to you, try to figure out, you know, try to see if you can calculate and figure out why that move leads to such a strong edge now, sort of ex post facto, and then turn the engine back on and see how close you came. I think that's probably one of the most critical things to do when you're, when you're analyzing the game. Right. And, uh, you know, this goes kind of close to probably one of the best things you could do when you're learning chess, and that is to learn it actively. Yeah, I agree, which goes into a, a, not just sort of what we were talking about, right, with just like thinking for yourself in the opening, but uh, like sort of taking responsibility for your own improvement, right? You know, challenging mm-hmm. yourself. Can I, can I find this line that the, computer's, that the computer's spitting out? Okay, I played the line out that the engine suggested, and I still didn't get it, right? How, how can I achieve this understanding? Um, I think mm-hmm. that's an excellent point. Or is it like realistic even, you know? Is it realistic? Yep, mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, okay, shall we move on to your... I think we're on number three for you now, right? That's right. Oh, uh, real quick here, before we go to that, um, there was an interesting video that that we uh, should talk about. Uh, yes, um, and we'll include before. this in the show notes as well. Do you want to intro this video for us? 
Um, yeah, so it's Anish Giri talking about his uh, time with Kramnik as a second. Um, and basically, you know, they're, uh, of course, like the computers are stronger now. And this was, uh, what was this, maybe 2018, I believe he's referencing the mm. Candidates Tournament 2018, because that was, I think, the last time he played the Candidates Tournament. But um, anyway, so he talks about um, Kramnik having this, uh, they're, they're going for a walk. He, Kramnik has this brilliant idea. He's like, I have this awesome idea. So it's D4, D5, Knight F3, Knight F6, C3. And then Geary's like, oh my God, you know, I guess a, at some point <laughs> age gets the, the better of us, right? Right. And at some point. about C3 at that point, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, in many ways, that's already quite remarkable because it shows um, an understanding that like, you know, trying to prepare too many quote unquote principled lines is not sustainable uh, because like those types of forcing lines can be exhausted like we had talked about uh, earlier in this episode. But anyway, um, and like, yeah, looking at it, basically, they go down this line. It's a totally symmetrical position where black can't copy forever. So Kramnik says white's a little bit better. Um, it's like C3, C6, bishop F4, bishop F5, and, and so on. The readers will see it in the show notes. And um, Geary is just saying, like, okay, let's, let's check it. And then, uh, essentially, uh, Geary's like, well, it says you're, it's minus 0.10. And Kramnik's like, okay, prove it. So, you know, he makes a move, Geary makes it, and then all of a sudden he becomes, he gets a worse position. Mm-hmm. And then it happens again and again, and Geary's like, no, I'm sorry, Vladimir, you're very strong, um, <laughs> but you're worse. This is what it, the computer says. He's like, no, 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 you're very strong too, just white's better. And then it goes on and on, and then, you know, years later, right, he finds out that, you know, indeed white is better, and for Kramnik, there is this belief that, you know, the computer can be wrong. And yeah, like what we were talking about earlier, where, you know, nowadays people have a, a willingness to just totally give themselves to the computer and just accept it as the truth. When you and I know we've done this dance before with other engines, right? right? As, as you yourself put, or uh, stated so eloquently before the, before the show, there was a time when everybody thought Fritz Five was the and the complete truth. Right, exactly. And, you know, it's just interesting to see, especially people that have been around the game long enough that, like, you know, really, we haven't learned anything from before. Like, the computer was never wrong before. I mean, I get that the technology is the best it's ever been now, but it was back then, too. And, like, we didn't really know any better. We had no idea or at least a lot of us had no idea about what was coming with neural net technology. Right. Yeah. You know? And where that has taken chess engines. I mean, where it's taken everything, but especially how, how, how engines approach chess. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And probably our last point, right, for the show? Yes, I think so. I was just going to say, perfect way to, intro- to introduce our last point. Take it away. Uh, well, that's on you, sir. It was your last point. Oh my goodness! <laughs> You're right. I was. For, I'm. I'm. See, this is the problem, Gopal. I'm so used to going first um, mm-hmm. that uh, that I that I thought the final point would would of course be you because we're at one, two, three, four, five, six. All right. Anyway, hey, uh, so used to going first. You must not have been married for too long, eh? <laughs> I'm gonna pretend that joke didn't happen. Or wait, wait, wait. In classic Gopal mode, I need to play the um, 
car the crash? Train, yes, the car crash train wreck sound. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, obviously, we don't believe this. This is just a joke that it, you know our parents' generation would find amusing, right? right. Like, womp, womp, womp. why would they hate their spouse? It's weird. But anyway, go on. Uh, okay. So final final point here. Uh, again, topic: things we learned uh, after becoming a chess master about chess. This is an interesting one because. In some ways, it's sort of an intuitive one that you kind of figure out as you play. But then when you see it and when you understand it, and more importantly, when you study it, and that is the concept of the Rubenstein Rook. Uh, that's how I've heard it termed. It maybe goes by other names or have, has other descriptors. Um, mm-hmm. But the Rubenstein Rook, if you can sort of picture it, is the Rook that uh, sort of nails down the opponent to defense. Uh, most notably on the second or seventh rank. So I'll give a positional example. A white rook is on a6. A black pawn is on a7. The black defending rook is somewhere on the seventh rank. Um, Or worst case scenario, a8. Worst case scenario, a8, but let's say the seventh rank. And the black king is also somewhere on rank eight or rank seven. Uh, Now, of course, there are other pawns on, on the other side of the board somewhere on the king side. And there are probably, you know, maybe one other white pawn on the queen side somewhere. But that's the gist of it. And the idea is that the white rook on a6 is actually incredibly active, both pressuring mm-hmm. the a7 pawn and also sort of patrolling the sixth rank. So a lot of times the black king can't cross. Yeah, and get active. pinning the king down. Yeah. Right. A lot of times it also has, sometimes the winning maneuver with this rook is to transfer to the king side along the sixth rank at some point. Like if the black king comes too far and the white king gets active. Um, so essentially it's just, a, it's a rook and pawn in-game concept. The idea of the concept is uh, you're sort of pinning the opponent down to passive defense. It's a little bit more of what we were talking about earlier, actually. It has an interesting parallel to sort of that simmer, right? Where you're uh, slowly building the pressure, kind of like a, like, a, like a simmering pot. You know, the pressure is slowly building uh, in the rook and pawn endgame until you can achieve some kind of breakthrough or some kind of decisive advantage elsewhere, maybe open up a second front, create a second weakness. Improve. With little counterplay uh, for your opponent, too. That's Yes, and that's sort of the crux of it, and the worst part is the opponent has just almost almost a helpless feeling, right? Right, especially because like the, the king is passive, the rook is passive, everything is just bad uh, every in terms of the check. I put it in a checklist for students, you know? Right. Oh, that's an excellent way of putting it, yeah. In terms of like options for things that are not passive defense, it's basically like there aren't any, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And hard for um, the defending side to provoke a mistake, uh, you know, for the opponent because the, their maximum aspiration is for a draw, which could ultimately be in vain. Right. Either um, the passive defense holds or it, or, or it doesn't. There's no sort of third outcome. Right. And like to talk about um, something like we just, you know, we could parallel from earlier the exchange is giving an illusion of clarity or, you know, equality, just like uh, it can be illustrated very clearly here, you know, um, the tendency to want to overcalculate this and like think, oh, okay, nothing bad is happening right now. So I'm, I must be holding, right? The position is so simple. I must be holding. But like, in fact, it's quite the opposite. Right, the position is so simple that <laughs> it's it's hard to it's hard to do anything other than suffer. Right, 
Right. But yeah, a lot of times people don't see, well, nothing, or they, they just see, well, nothing bad is happening to me right away. So. Right. Not, not to mention that, that there's nothing I can do to escape this problem, but at least right, for the exactly. moment I'm fine. Right. Yeah. It, it feels almost like, you know, seeing a tidal wave, like a uh, hundred miles offshore, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Oh, that'll be fine. It'll never, it'll never reach you. It's very far away. Um, uh, probably somebody's going to reach out and be like, yeah, actually a uh, hundred miles away, it would uh, subside before hitting the shore. Well, the square root of the wave is subsiding. Uh, yes. Shut up. As is known, if you, if you measure the hypotenuse, uh, you can determine that it will uh, only reach the coastline as a trickle. Anyway, in any What's case... What's the, the square root of this podcast? Uh, no idea. <laughs> yeah, so that's enough. something that you multiply by itself to get the podcast, right? What would that be? What could you multiply by itself to get the podcast? The high podcast news? Oh, a very good. Dropping that into the hypotenuse. I like it. Yes. Okay. There you go. Yes. Um, Dropping it just like we're going to drop this uh, podcast episode. Um, Yes. We're going to drop it like it's hot, as the children would say. Yeah. Although I feel like, isn't that like maybe from like a Ja Rule song or something? Someone's going to correct me on this. I know. Our listeners, what is the square root of our podcast? I'm very curious to hear. It would be easy if we had like a clever podcast name, like, you know, 64 or something, because then we could just give a numerical uh, answer. But, um, or, you know, hey, plus five, 64 plus five, and, you know, two plus two get... equals five, which gets you out of a deep, dark forest. That's true. Uh, in any case, I'm curious, you know, what, what would it be? Uh, but yeah, so getting back to the getting back to the final point here, I think there were there were like a few of these rook endgame ideas, which are like sort of intuitive. But then when you think of them or or hear about them in a dogmatic way, like oh yeah yeah yeah, you pin the opponent down to passivity, just sort of understanding that. And by the way, in games in general, um, I would say were something that I like vastly improved sort of after becoming a master. Did you find the same is true for you? Absolutely. Um... I mean, again, like if you think, oh, well, I don't play boring chess, right? This type of uh, very categorical and just bad thinking, um, you know, you know, once that kind of diminished, like you realize, okay, you have to do what the position wants from you, right? And you know, in this way, you have to be somewhat of a universal player. Um, but also, too, in the end game, you're working with uh, a lot less just generally speaking. So, you know, getting good with working with a lot less plus um, overcoming this perception of uh, what is boring, you know, or does boring reflect a lack of understanding or whatever. Um, yeah. This quiet character of play. And it's, it's really basically what I'm saying in so many words is that it was just a different set of skills and overall mindset that it took for me to improve a lot in the end game. Um, I think and that's just the willingness to point. accept it. An overall mindset, right? Like that's yeah. a great point. Just thinking about things in a different, uh, a different way, or like having a having a different approach um, at the board. I think you're right. I think that that has a lot to do with it, and that again sort of references our, our very first topic today of you know sort of the way that you approach and think about things in a must-win scenario or in an end game can influence the outcome of the game dramatically. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, I think that's a really insightful point to end on. Well done, Gopal. 
it's not so often we get to wrap it so cleanly. Any any final thoughts on any of the topics today? Um, I don't know. I think I think there is just a lot to unpack there. Um, and I think we did well to only have like maybe two tangents. Wow, that this that time. has to be a record for us of least amount of tangents available. What's the square root of our tangents? That feels like a more mathematical equation that we can probably figure out with due diligence. You know yeah, who we two, need? Yeah. We need Goodwill Hunting. He would know the answer to this in, 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 uh, immediately. How how good is he? You know, I have no idea. I haven't seen that movie actually. I think since it released, it's not like one of those like watch again movies. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you've seen it, you've seen it. Some movies I can watch like a million times, but some movies, you know what I mean? You know what I mean by that? Like some movies are like watch again movies where you can just watch it like over and over. For me personally, like the Ocean's Eleven trilogy is one of those. Like I could just watch that as many mm-hmm. times as, as necessary. Or maybe, well, no, Jay and Silent Bob, it's not as, uh, no, it's not as classic, but I do love their parody of Goodwill Hunting. Yes. And I would say, I would also add to that, like they're, the, those two, like their collaborations in general are, are pretty entertaining. Like Clerks, I think was the first one, right? Mm-hmm. Although Clerks 2, I thought was not quite as good. Did you see Clerks 2? I think so, but yeah. I feel like we need a, a, a like a special Chess Underground movies episode. Maybe we oh, should like, do- oh, are we talking about normie movies or, or movies with chess in them? I was actually thinking the second. That might be really interesting. Like we could come up with our top 10 Movies with chess in them rankings. Okay. I know number one, like off the top of my head for me, but let's, let's save it. I don't want to, I don't want to drop it. Let's do that. Let's do this. This is a great idea. We just kind of came up with it on the spot. It's the queen's gambit, right? That, that's not a movie, a, but we could consider all pop culture, like TV shows could be allowed and B, no, it is not the queen's gambit. Okay. Mm. Uh, okay. For on that note, we have our, our new podcast uh, episode idea. Uh, but for now, um, for myself, your host, uh, Pete Karianis, and also for Go Ball Menon. It's been a pleasure. Enjoy your October, everyone. Happy Halloween. We're out. Love you, bye. Thank you for listening to the Chess Underground, a U.S. chess podcast. Please check out our entire suite of podcasts, which release every Tuesday, and include Ladies' Night with Jen Shahad, as well as Chess Life cover stories and One Move at a Time with Dan Lucas. U.S. Chess would like to thank Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media for a podcast production and editing. If you are starting your own podcast, visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com for consulting, production, and editing. Until next time, signing off, Pete Karyanis. <laughs>